So it's a real uh, pleasure and uh, delight to have Kristen Neff with us. I've been trying to get her here for a while. Um, she's she lives in Austin, Texas, so it's not around the corner. Uh, but since she was coming around, uh, coming to the conference, I said, "Hey, how about if you can stop off uh, and uh, be with the community?" And she uh, graciously accepted. So, and Kristen uh, is um, is one of these people who has become well known in the mindfulness field, um, who actually has a a real mindfulness practice. So it's great that she's uh, done uh, lots of retreats and uh, really is is based in uh, in her own practice and has sat at Spirit Rock and um, did the Awakening Joy course a number of years ago. So uh, she's, uh, she's family and now she's coming back and reconnecting. And uh, in the last... Uh, few years um, associated particularly with this uh, whole um, approach to practice um, focusing, emphasizing self-compassion, which uh, is the name of the the book that came out in 2011 was, and uh, does a lot of speaking around the country besides her work at uh, the University of Texas. So, um, how about if we just start out by uh, asking you how you got into self-compassion and uh, made that such a main focus of of what you share and teach. Okay. Uh, First, I have to say it's such an honor to be sitting up here with you. I was one of the students taking the Awakening Joy class. The fact that I'm up here on stage with them is just really cool and kind of exciting, so it's quite an honor. Um... Yeah, so my path to self-compassion was through Buddhism. In fact, Berkeley, I went to graduate school at UC Berkeley, and it was my last year of graduate school, and I was going through a pretty rough time in my life. Um, I had just gotten divorced, and it it wasn't pretty. And uh, I had a lot of stress and felt anxious about what I get my PhD, but even more than that, if I did get my PhD, would I get a job? So I thought, well... Hmm, maybe I should learn to meditate, right? You know, like when in Rome, do as the Romans, when in Berkeley, do as the Berkeleyans, which is learn how to meditate. So um, I actually lived down on Solano Avenue, and there was a, a Thich Nhat Hanh Sangha actually started out at, went to go learn to meditate. And the very first night I went to the Sangha, um, the woman leading the group talked about the importance of having compassion for yourself as well as others. And I just, it was like a light bulb moment, you know, like, what? I'm allowed to be nice to myself, and this woman's encouraging me to be nice to myself? And I realized in that moment that's exactly what I needed. I was going through a hard time, and I I really needed to give myself a lot of compassion, care, and tenderness. Um, So really, from that point on, I started practicing compassion uh, in my personal life. And uh, it's, it's really gotten me through some, over, well, it gets me through every day, but also some, uh, through some really difficult times. Um, another thing I've kind of been associated with is a film um, my family made about my son, who's autistic, called The Horse Boy. 
And uh, you can only imagine how helpful it was to have a grounded self-compassion practice um, throughout the time of raising my son. Uh, when he first got diagnosed, um, I just really let myself feel all the grief and sadness and ha- gave myself a lot of compassion for it. I mean, typically you get the diagnosis and the first thing you do is you call up the doctors and you go on the internet. And I did all that. But I knew how important it was, if I was going to deal with this, to give myself compassion. Really, primarily, that was my main practice. And then um, just throughout the years, when it's been a struggle, I've really been able to fall back on my self-compassion practice to get me through. So I suppose another way of saying this is this really, I'm so passionate about self-compassion because it comes from my personal practice, my personal life. It's not an abstract theoretical idea. Um, but nonetheless, I have, I have conducted research on self-compassion. Um, what happened is that I did get a job after graduate school. I got a postdoc with uh, one of the country's leading self-esteem researchers. And it was when I was working with her that I started understanding all the research that was questioning uh, all the importance placed on self-esteem as the ultimate marker of well-being. Uh, so self-esteem is, can be kind of problematic. It's a... Uh, for instance, we all have to be special and above average to have high self-esteem, which is a bit of a problem if we all have to be special and above average, right, to have self-esteem. Uh, it can be related to narcissism. People bully others to get high self-esteem, prejudice. In other words, self-esteem is not always pretty if it's based on the social comparison. Am I better than that person? Am I worse than that person? And so here I was learning about this in in, uh, my postdoc, and I was practicing self-compassion, and I thought, self-compassion is such a nice alternative to self-esteem, because instead of judging yourself positively, you're just relating to yourself kindly, um, even in instances of failure, insecurity, inadequacy, etc. So um, then I got the job at UT Austin, and I thought, wow, it'd be really great to do research on self-compassion. And... um, At that point, no one had done any research in academia. Uh, So I thought, okay, well, how am I going to do this? Hmm." Well, the first thing I have to do is to find self-compassion. So I read every Buddhist book I could get my hands on. You know, Sharon Salzberg, Loving Kindness, Jack Kornfield, The Path with Heart. I read all all this stuff. and So my conceptualization really comes straight from insight meditation. So I can can admit that here, right? (laughs) So... um, I thought the first thing I had to do was define it, um, and then I created a scale to measure it, which is what got the ball rolling. So I guess I'll just um, talk about how you define self-compassion and then maybe give you a little experiential exercise of what it feels like um, according to this model. So, uh, and I, I should say also that from my perspective, there's no difference between compassion for self and others. And I think from the Buddhist perspective, the idea is um, it's the same feeling, it's just that we often exclude ourselves from the circle of compassion. So um, really, if we understand that there isn't this distinction between self and other, and we're all interdependent, it doesn't make sense to give compassion to others, but not to the self. So I often like to start... um, My definition of self-compassion really comes from understanding the experience of compassion for others. So what's the first thing that has to happen in order to have compassion for someone else? Let's say um, you're walking down the street, Telegraph Avenue, and um, there's a homeless woman on the side of the road. So what's the first thing that has to happen in order for you to have compassion for her? You have to see her, 
right? So you have to notice she's there. If you walk on past on your cell phone, you can't give her compassion. So what's the next thing that has to happen for it to be an experience of compassion? Right? Or, you know, maybe if it'd be nice, but maybe she's looking down. So, so what, in order for it to be compassionate, a compassionate response, you notice her and... Yeah, so both of those components right there. First, you've got to respond with um, a sense of care, right? You might just be irritated by her. So your heart has to respond and, and notice her suffering. Like, wow, you know, that's, she's an old woman. She's by the side of the road. What's her story? Is she getting mental health services? So your heart goes out to that woman. And then as you say, instead of looking down at her or feeling sorry for her, you have to say, there but for the grace of God, go I. That could be me. We're all human, right? And that would, that's what differentiates compassion from pity. So as I was thinking about these elements of compassion, I define self-compassion the same way. So the, there's three main elements, according to my model. Uh, so the first one is the most obvious, which is self-kindness. So when we fail or we make a mistake or we feel inadequate or even just when life is really difficult or really stressed and struggling, uh, we respond to ourselves with kindness, gentleness, understanding, care, as opposed to with harsh self-judgment. Um, and more than that, with, with self-kindness, it's... Uh, with compassion, there's an action component, concerned with the alleviation of suffering. So the same thing with self-compassion, that we actively soothe and comfort ourselves um, when, we, when we're struggling and we need some help. Just like a friend, when your friend's struggling, you give your friend a hug. Like, oh, I'm so sorry, poor thing. And give you, put your arm around their shoulder. It's the same attitude towards ourselves, really treating ourselves like a good friend, being kind and supportive to ourselves when we need it most. Um, and then the second component is this common humanity component, framing our experience of suffering, of imperfection, really, in light of the shared human experience. Uh, what happens often, this isn't happening at the rational level, but irrationally, when we fail, we blow it on a big work assignment, or our boyfriend leaves us, or, um, I don't know, we get rear-ended on the freeway, we feel like, wait, this shouldn't be happening. Is it, again, this isn't logical, but this isn't the plan I signed up for. I want my money back, right? The plan I signed up for was perfection. I would be perfect. My life would be perfect. And when it's not, something has gone wrong. And so that feeling of something has gone wrong, that this is abnormal, creates a tremendous sense of isolation. So often when we suffer, especially when our suffering is from feeling inadequate, we feel cut off from other people. So with self-compassion, when we remember that suffering and imperfection is the shared human experience, then we feel connected to other people in this experience of suffering. Um, every moment of suffering becomes an opportunity for connection as opposed to isolation. So self-compassion entails kindness versus self-judgment, common humanity versus a sense of isolation. Uh, and then finally, it does require mindfulness because you have to notice the suffering. Right? So we have to notice our own suffering in order to give ourselves compassion. And what's really amazing is often people don't. I mean, you might think, what do you mean notice my own suffering? Isn't it like blindingly obvious and neon lights? But it's often not, actually. We're so caught up in either criticizing ourselves or we're lost in the storyline of what happened and who said what or we're trying to fix the problem so hard that we don't stop to um, notice and say, wow, this is really hard right now. I'm struggling. I need a little TLC. So um, in order to have self-compassion, we need to be mindful of our pain. And also, we need to be able to, willing to turn toward it. 
Sometimes we just want to suppress or avoid our pain. I'm not willing to think about that. We can't give ourselves compassion if we're being avoidant or have aversion. So we need to turn toward our pain, acknowledge it, recognize it, and then embrace it with an open heart. All right, so I want to give you a little experiential taste of what I'm talking about. Uh, so it's not just words. So I'd like everyone, if you please, I'll put your hands in front of you and clench your fists really hard. Give them a good old squeeze. Okay, so as you do this, what kind of, what comes up for you? Thoughts, emotions, sensations? Okay, that's good. Strength? Defended? Tense? Sorry, what? Tiring. Tiring? Yeah, you're like, when's she going to stop at this exercise? Yeah. Holding on for dear life, right? Okay, so you might think, keep your fist here, that this is really what self-criticism feels like. We're constantly beating ourselves up, right? We, of, we often walk around like this all the time with our harsh inner critic. So now open your palms and have them face upward. So what does this feel like? What comes up for you? <sighs> what? Receptive? Mm-hmm. Relaxed? Offerings? Open? Letting go, right? So in some ways you can see this as a gesture of mindfulness, what happens when we stop resisting and fighting against our experience, including ourselves, and just let things be as they are. Now put your hands forward like this, extending them forward, palms up. So what arises for you when you do this? Reaching out to others. Vulnerable? Mm-hmm. Expansion of ourselves. Right? Yeah, anything else? Invitation. Right. So, um, generosity, right. So in some ways you can see this as a gesture representing common humanity, our interconnectedness, the shared nature of our experience. But now put one hand over the other and place them over the center of your heart. Just take a moment to really feel the warmth of your hands, Feel the gentle pressure of your hands on your chest. Be noticing the beating of your heart. So what comes up when you make this gesture? Calm. Cared for. Comforting. Kindness. So this is really a gesture of self-kindness, or you might see it as kind of representing the whole of self-compassion. feels pretty good, doesn't it? It's funny, I, I taught this to a group of uh, vets at the VA in, in Austin, and there was this big guy with tattoos, and he was bald. He was like, vet, back from Iraq. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to have him put his hand over his heart. And I asked him how, you know, I asked the group how it felt, and he said, I never want to let go. <laughs> and the entire hour I spoke, to that group, he had his hands like this on his heart. So it feels, it feels pretty good. It feels pretty good, right? Um, and there's a reason, uh, physiologically, why we can get these responses. Um, so self-criticism, our habitual way of reacting to ourselves, for most of us, uh, what it does is it actually taps into our threat defense system, our reptilian brain. 
So this system evolves so that when there's a threat to our bodily self, our amygdala gets triggered, we release cortisol and adrenaline, and we get ready for fight or flight. Now, the system is very useful if you're you know, running away from lions. Okay? But in modern-day times, the threat is usually not to our bodily self. Our threat is to our self-concept. We're so identified with our identity and our sense of self and who we are that when we notice a problem in ourselves, it feels like a threat to our actual self. So we respond with a threat defense system. Um, we attack the problem and we feel attacked by the problem. So a self-criticism is a double whammy because we're both the attacker and the attacked. And that's why self-criticism is so strongly associated with increased stress and eventually depression because you can't handle, handle all the cortisol all the time so your body shuts down. Right? So that, there's, a, there's a feeling of power in that because you're really fighting the problem. The unfortunate thing is the problem's yourself. You're beating yourself up. It's a little counterproductive, right? But luckily, we aren't just reptiles. We aren't, don't have, just have a reptilian brain. We're also mammals. So what happened in evolution is a second system evolved to help us keep safe, and that's the mammalian caregiving system. Right? So th- what's unique about mammals is mammalian young are born very mature, so a system had to evolve to, um, to make the infant, the infant mammal, want to be next to the mother to stay safe as they get old enough to actually eventually be on their own. So that means our bodies are designed to respond to warmth, soothing touch, and gentle vocalizations, right? Imagine a, a, you know, a mommy lying kind of purring and keep cuddling the baby close. So when we do something like this, we are actually tapping physiologically into our caregiving system, releasing things like oxytocin and opiates, which calm and soothe us at the physiological level. So, you know, what you're feeling, there's a reason you can actually feel this stuff because they're tapping into different physiological systems. Ooh, that was a lot of talking, so I could go on. Um, Do you want to ask a question? I mean, I could could continue for hours, but... (laughs) Yeah, so... um I see a lot of people, and uh, we all know a lot of people who uh, come to practice um, knowing conceptually that self-compassion and kindness is a good thing. Yeah. But whether it's the hard, whether it's wired in the patterns that have been set, uh, or something deep inside of them um, blocks them from giving what they know is will be good for them. How do you bridge that that gap from knowing here and mm-hmm. actually being able to give and, and receive that mm-hmm. to yourself? Um, well, a couple different ways. I think there is it's useful at the conceptual level to understand why we criticize ourselves. Um, we come by it honestly. A lot of the reasons for it is maybe we had critical caregivers when we were young who had that voice telling us we weren't good enough. Um, but it's not, we can't just blame our mothers. <laughs> uh, one, probably the biggest reason people are self-critical is because they think they need self-criticism to motivate themselves. Especially in our culture, our individualistic striving culture, we think we need the whip to keep ourselves going. Right? Um, and it used to be we had that philosophy for child rearing, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. And we've kind of dropped that with child-rearing, but we still have it for ourselves. We think that if we aren't hard on ourselves, we'll be lazy and complacent. Um, so you really have to help people learn how to motivate themselves with kindness. 
to try to reach your goals and do your best because you care about yourself and you don't want to suffer and you want to thrive and be happy, not because you're somehow inadequate if you don't reach your goals. So I think once you help people reorient, that helps. But we do a lot of uh, physical gestures of compassion because sometimes your mind is just too abstract, it's too much about thoughts. So we, we try to be embodied and um, really help people to, when they're feeling stressed or feeling bad about themselves, to do things like this. Or cradle, sorry, cradle their face or um, give themselves a hug. Because uh, often it's good to just cut through all the mental stuff and go straight to the, the physical gesture of embodied compassion. Um, yeah. I would imagine there's still some, for some people it's really hard to either you might do it but to actually let it in yeah. any, any particular things that you notice that again allow that armoring to, to, uh, to melt and to really come to that magic moment where oh mm-hmm. yes I really do care about you dear inside yeah well it it does take a while um there's actually a phenomena we call backdraft which is sometimes when your heart's been closed with suffering for a long time and perhaps you had to close it when you were young to protect yourself um you open up the door of your heart and it's like backdraft the fire blows out and oftentimes you do this and what you feel is hatred and fear you know and just the opposite of compassion so you just have to understand that that's normal, that's part of the healing process. And for some people, especially if the childhood was difficult, it just takes a while. Um, so it's really a matter of bringing compassion to that. Okay, I, I do that and I feel hatred and fear. Can I bring compassion to that? Right? So just constantly bringing compassion to whatever your experience is. And eventually it's, it starts to soften. Um, one key is, uh, we actually have developed a program to teach self-compassion called Mindful Self-Compassion. And one of our slogans is, we give ourselves compassion not to feel better, but because we feel bad. It's really important. So if you're suffering and you go in there and say, oh wow, the first time Kristen told me to put my hand on my heart, it worked, I felt so good. And then three weeks later, you put your hand on your heart and you still feel like crap. That's just another slick form of resistance, right? You know, so if you're, if you're trying to control your experience by giving yourself compassion, you're still fighting your experience. And I think that can happen, especially when people are really suffering. But when you open to your suffering and acknowledge, wow, I do feel really bad, and because I feel bad, I need to give myself some care in this moment, that can also really soften it. So switching from striving mind to accepting mind. Um, can make a very big difference as well. Yeah. For me, I, I, I often talk about uh, compassion, the, the sublime state, it's a Brahma-vihara of compassion that requires suffering, and it's not that suffering is sublime, but that it sparks that feeling of care, and if somehow you can, even for a moment, touch the place where you care, uh, there's... There's the uh, opening to that, that channel. That's right. Mm. Yeah. And, and so a lot of people um, say, well, you know, I could be with my experience mindfully, but once I did this, I could go so much deeper in my, into my experience. And part of that is because compassion makes us feel safe, I mean, even at the physiological level. It calms us. It, it, it reduces cortisol. 
uh, releases oxytocin, makes us feel safe. And then we can just relax into our experience much more deeply. Um, so, but yeah, it, it takes a while. You know, break a habit of a lifetime. Uh, can't overdo uh, it. Can't overdo it. Actually, people have asked me that. Can't you be too self-compassionate? And I, I can't think of... Um, I can't think of an instance... I mean, yeah, if you're running from the lion, at that moment, you may not want to be self-compassionate, but as soon as you stop, give yourself some compassion for how stressful that was. Um, you know, it, as long as it's true self-compassion and it's not self-pity or self-indulgence uh, masquerading as self-compassion. and they, they can be confused if you aren't careful. So, So I don't know, I could have some questions, or I can teach a little self-compassion practice, or both. Teach some more stuff, and then we can have, uh, have time for questions. Okay. Um, so in the program we've developed to teach self-compassion skills, we do teach meditation, we teach loving-kindness meditation, and um, we do various variants, like instead of just the body scan, we teach a compassionate body scan, where whenever you encounter any pain or suffering in your body, you give it compassion, and maybe even kind of a variant. But we also teach a lot of informal practices, things that you can take with you in your daily life off the cushion. And so one that uh, can be really effective we call the self-compassion break. Okay, So uh, if you will be willing to go with me, I'd like to lead you through the self-compassion break. And this is something you can do whenever you need it in your daily life. So maybe start by closing your eyes. All right, so the first thing I'd like you to do before we fully go into the exercise is find for yourself some sort of touch that feels comforting and soothing. Uh, So for many people, that position of putting both hands over your heart center feels really comforting and soothing. Uh, But again, uh, there can be a lot of different gestures. For some people, having one hand on the heart and one hand on the belly feels really good. Or maybe giving yourself a hug or cradling your cheeks. So um, just take a few moments to experiment with a few different postures and what really to you feels the most soothing and comforting in this moment. And if they all feel good, then just choose one. Okay. And now I'd like you to think of current situation in your life right now that is difficult to deal with, that's causing you some struggles, some stress, some fears, some self-judgment. And you know, Don't necessarily choose the most difficult situation. You don't want to dive into the deep end of the pool. But some situation that's real and that you're struggling with right now that's bringing some pain and stress into your life. All right, so again, you might want to interview a few candidates for the job and see if you can find one situation that feels right to work with right now. I'm kind of playing the situation out in your mind. Why is this so difficult? Who said what? Why is this, you know, what's happening right now to cause such a struggle? 
Okay, so thinking about this difficult situation, again, putting your, your hand on your body, your hands on your body in a way that feels very soothing and comforting, holding the struggle in your mind, trying to be present with it. I'll let these words drop into your awareness. This is a moment of suffering. You know, really acknowledging it. This situation you're going through, this is a moment of suffering. And suffering is a part of life. You aren't alone in your suffering. This is part of what it means to be a human. So may I be kind to myself in this moment. This is really hard. It's really hard going through this. May I be kind to myself, caring to myself in this moment. May I give myself the compassion that I need, that I need to deal with this situation or to be with this situation. And then I'd like to invite you to listen to see if there's another phrase that comes to mind that speaks specifically to what you're going through. It might be something like, um, may I have courage or patience or may I accept myself. So you can listen, not necessarily to think of a phrase, but can you listen just to hear if there's anything arising for you that's just what you need right now. And then when you're ready, slowly opening your eyes. So you can do that. Um, you can all, we kind of let it as a mini meditation, but if, especially if you come up with phrases that really speak to you, it can be like a mantra. So in the heat of the moment, they can come to you. So I remember when my, my son was tantruming, for instance, I had you know, come up with these phrases. And I would just, it would start playing in my head, well, this is a moment of suffering, but suffering is part of life. May I be kind to myself in this moment. May I give myself the compassion I need. So it's just a reminder, you can see the three elements of self-compassion are there. It's just a reminder that, oh, what I need right now is to give myself some compassion. And again, this, this uh, soothing touch. Oh, by the way, if, if the problem is your boss, who's at work driving you crazy, and you feel it'd be a little socially inappropriate to do this, there's also what I call the surreptitious self-hug. <laughs> no one needs to know. But you know, if you do this with the intent, like give yourself a little squeeze and just like, wow, this is, this is really hard right now. This is really difficult. You can still, you can still give yourself that little <laughs> gesture. Yeah, does anyone have questions? I mean, I didn't talk about the research, but basically the bottom line is self-compassion is good. (laughs) Helps.
What you're speaking to feels super relevant to someone that I was sitting with earlier today and where I found myself struggling with um, kind of what to offer to her was around how she can really look towards all the people in her life that are suffering that have deeper levels of things Mm -hmm. to suffer about and how she uses that Mm -hmm. as like a self-criticism or like a Mm -hmm. devaluing of what she's going through. Yeah. And I wonder if you could speak a bit to that. Yeah, yeah. All this stuff is very slippery. So you some people you might see common humanity, everyone suffers is well, other people's suffering is more important or more valid or you know, what, what I'm experiencing isn't worthy of compassion or it is nothing compared to what they're going through. So that's why the mindfulness is so important is being with things just as they are. So you don't want to belittle your suffering. I mean, any moment of suffering, you look in the mirror and you criticize, I don't know, your left eyebrow is wrong, you know, whatever it happens to be, that's still a moment of suffering worthy of compassion. At the same time, it's, it's not at the same level as you're in a war zone, right? So acknowledging that suffering is part of life and all suffering is worthy of compassion is part of the human experience. But if you remember that, it also can help put things in perspective as well, and you realize that although it is difficult, it's worthy of compassion, it could be much worse, and maybe I don't have to be so overwhelmed by this experience because, oh, actually, I see it's, you know, compared to the whole realm of suffering, it's maybe something relatively small. So it's it's about, yeah, honoring it, acknowledging it, validating it, but also seeing it in perspective all at the same time. If that, I don't know if that helps, but <laughs> or not. We can talk more after. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm curious what the difference between um, kind of a deep acceptance of what is mm-hmm. and self-compassion is. Ooh, this is going to be the topic of the conference tomorrow. It's kind of uh, how mindfulness and compassion relate to one another, and are they the same thing or not? Um, and I think John Kabat-Zinn holds a slightly different opinion than I do, so it'll be, it'll be fun to see what comes out of the conference. Um, so the way I approach it is that with mindfulness, we fully accept our experience as it is, the present moment experience, because there is nothing but our present moment experience, right? So we, in a way, we all, almost have no choice but to accept the reality of what is. Because to fight against that reality is like banging our head against a wall of reality. Right? We have to accept this is happening, the suffering is happening, this situation is happening. And when you are able to do that and let go of your resistance to the truth of the present moment, it's not nearly as difficult. You aren't causing yourself unnecessary pain. But compassion, both for others and the self, is not aimed at the experience, which has to be accepted. It's aimed at the experiencer, It's the desire for sentient beings to be happy and free from suffering, um, combined with the motivational element of wanting to do something about it, soothe, comfort, help in some way. So you can simultaneously fully accept your experience while also wishing that it weren't so. And they both have to be held together. And they can be held together, especially since they're aimed at slightly different levels, one's the experience and one's the experiencer. So compassion is not passive, 
Think of Martin Luther King, Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, right? They use nonviolence and compassion to say, no, this is not okay as a force of social change. But at the same time, they didn't, you know, close off their hearts to anyone. So, um, yeah, compassion as an action element combined with the mindful awareness of this is how things are. So So I want to just uh, ask you one uh, something to follow that up. Often um, people have the urge to do something out of compassion, mm-hmm. but in the doing, um, they they don't give the person the what they really need, which is often just being seen and mm-hmm. being held and having uh, being a caring presence, That's which right. is not so much about doing as much mm-hmm. as witnessing with a loving heart. Right. Um, so uh, just could you tease that out a little bit when, you, when you're talking about compassion being yeah. a verb? Well, it's, it's, it's a bit of a dance, and that's why both are so essential. So when I, and I said the slogan is, we give ourselves compassion not to feel better, but because we feel bad, right? So you really have to honor and accept and acknowledge and be with the suffering, and not try to make it go away. But at the same time, because you care about your suffering, you're, you, you give yourself support and kindness and comfort to help you get through that difficult moment. So you're kind of being and doing simultaneously. And if you veer too much towards the doing, it becomes striving, and you're starting to make your experience go away. But if you're too accepting then you can maybe not be active enough in the sense that maybe you need to protect yourself. Maybe you need to leave this relationship. Maybe it's not okay the way you're being treated. Or maybe it's not okay that I'm, I'm doing this behavior that's harming myself and others. So if you're too much in being mode, and accepting mode, sometimes um, it can lead to passivity. Right? So the Dalai Lama, for instance, the story is someone went up to the Dalai Lama and said, you know, your holiness... Well, how do, you know, what do you do about child molesters? Kind of expecting him to say, oh, yes, we must open our hearts. And, and the Dalai Lama said, what do you mean? You throw him in jail and you throw away the key, <laughs> like immediately, right? So if harm is being done, you have to take action. Um, but with, you can mindfully take action. So I really think, but it takes, it's a, it's a balance, it's delicate, and you also, you need to kind of veer to the left, and veer to the right. And it, it's, it's, I find uh, really important to stress this, that um, action, it can be a still action. It can be an action of, of presence um, that is often more effective than, than the action of doing, because often the action of doing is coming out of some kind of aversion yes, or... Um, fear or anxiety of I, I, I have mm-hmm. to take care of my own uncomfortable mm-hmm. feeling and you know if somebody says you know oh this is so terrible oh we what can we do to help you and mm-hmm. uh, then, then you've got to help them right you gotta you got to take care of them and often people don't get how powerful it is to just be a, a loving witness which is itself uh, a profound kind of action, although it's not a, a, an action of movement. Sometimes the action can be very subtle. But, you know, you have people sit with their pain. And be, be, can you just be with that? Yes, I can be with that. It's, you know, it's okay. 
And then you have them say, this is really hard right now. And you say to yourself, you know, I'm so sorry you're feeling this, darling. I know how hard this is for you. I'm here for you. I'm, you, know, you have my support. It changes things. It's kind of an action. It's not like I'm fixing the problem, I'm making it go away. But you're actively responding to the suffering with the willingness to help as best you can. And that, that can be very powerful, even more powerful than just saying, can I be with my experience as it is? So I really think both are, are necessary. But uh, yeah, it can easily veer into striving and resistance. So you have to be careful. Yeah. So how is this? Hello. Is this the same as metta? Different than metta? It seems a little more conceptual, but I'm just guessing here. Well, I mean, I guess there's metta and there's karuna, right? They're, the two, they're two of the four Brahma-viharas. So metta is loving-kindness, which is, you might say, the desire for others to be happy and well. And karuna, compassion, is really specific to suffering and the desire for sentient beings to be free from suffering. You could probably take this question better than me. But you might see metta and, and loving uh, and compassion as two sides of the same coin. So the open heart, when it meets suffering, is compassion. The open heart, when it meets joy, is mudita, sympathetic joy. And just the open heart in general might be wishing everyone to be well and free from suffering and happy, loving kindness. Do you want to add to yeah, that? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, I would say exactly the same thing, that metta in the face of suffering becomes compassion. In the face of happiness becomes mudita, but it's that that feeling of connection and and wishing well. That's right. Um, so then it turns to compassion. And can metta be directed? Can metta be directed internally the same way that oh, compassion? Oh yeah. Is? yeah. So when, when the practices we teach is loving kindness for oneself, you know, as part of classic metta practice, you usually do the self and a benefactor and then a neutral person. In our program, we mainly sit with the self because that's usually the hardest for people. Um, well, actually, maybe the enemy's hardest, but we make it easy on people and just stick with the self. And if, uh, do you ever direct them to benefactor if, they, if the self isn't quite well, as accessible? So here's beginning? what we do, is we actually start with a very easy target. Someone you love unconditional love and for, off, for many people that's their pet so it could be a benefactor it could be your grandmother it could be your little pet dog and then so we start having people give loving kindness and say the phrases for their loved one so may you be, you know may you be well Fido may you be happy may you live with these and then we say um, you and your loved one so may we be safe may we be peaceful may we be healthy may we live with these and then we invite people to let the loved one go and just sit with the self. May I be safe? May I be peaceful? And so we kind of tuck ourselves in by starting with the easy target, getting the juices flowing, and then pulling back. It's kind of more scaffolding the process, and it seems to help um, when you do that. I wanted to ask you about something you talked about earlier, which is um, I was thinking as you were talking about the suffering that we inflict upon ourselves, there is a payoff. That's why we keep doing it. And it seems to me that we, to enable to, in order to let go of the payoff, 
we have to find another payoff. And I think the cross, the bridge to get there is usually mindfulness. If we are not aware of what we're getting out of this thing that we do to ourselves and the, this addiction to, to the cycle, to the samsara, um, and we're able to let go because it's not serving us anymore, mm-hmm. then it's very difficult to find a way to cultivate a practice of self-compassion. So, um, well, it, I see them as part of a process, but I'm just curious, where do you see it as the payoff? Well, you talked about the child mm-hmm. that needs to be whipped once in a while because right. that's what he or she knows. And when we grow up, you know, we internalize the, the abuser in our lives and we do that to mm-hmm. ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the addiction to recreating the past. Mm-hmm. So and also motivating ourselves. That's the motivating that. Yeah. It, it's a payoff, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, so absolutely you need to be mindful of the incredible pain you're causing yourself. Um, you also, what we find we, when we, we have an ex- exercise about how to motivate yourself with compassion rather than self-criticism. And you know the key to that, and I, I worked on this exercise for years trying to get it right, and the key that made, made it work is by giving compassion to the self-critic and understanding that your self-critic is trying to keep you safe in a way. It's trying to say, hey, that behavior's a problem. You're going to be rejected. You won't be loved. You better do something about it and get yourself in line. And so it's really, again, it's part of the threat defense system. It's trying to keep you safe. So when you can turn toward the inner critic with, with actually, you know, with mindfulness, recognizing the suffering it's causing you, but also with compassion and wow, you've been working hard for me my, my whole life to try to keep me safe. No, it actually hasn't been that effective, but thank you. you know, thank you. And then once you do that, you create the space to let in the inner compassionate voice who says the inner compassionate voice, it motivates you by saying this, I love you and I don't want you to suffer. Right? So you can motivate yourself in the place of, I love you and I don't want you to suffer. And therefore, I, I would like you to make this change because you're causing yourself suffering. So you can be motivated by love or motivated by fear. Um, yeah. uh, uh, just uh, on the month long, <clears throat> it was really moving. This one, this one guy um, who knew he had a lifelong pattern of, of being hard on himself and uh, it was really coming up a lot uh, as the retreat was, as he was getting into the retreat and he he said, you know, there's this 18-year-old bully inside <clears throat> just really giving him a hard time and he really just wanted to do battle and but he, he couldn't win. And uh, as we kept on exploring it, um, he found that there was a six-year-old who was just really frightened, and that took on the the attitude of an eighteen-year-old bully. And as soon as he got in touch with that, oh, this is just a really scared part of me. His heart melted, and his whole process, and he's been practicing for for a fair amount of time, just he felt for the first time genuine softening and caring and, and not wanting to reject 
but just seeing, oh, gosh, you are having such a hard time. Mm-hmm. And his, his retreat really started to open up. So mm-hmm. somehow, if you stop the battle Mm-hmm. And there's a part of you who that that can that can bring some understanding, some kindness, compassionate understanding. Uh, in a moment, it just shifts everything. Then then you're not in battle anymore, and and your heart is touched. And when you just like when when you put your hand on your heart, sometimes I I say I also advise people to put their hands on the hearts and uh, on their chest and be the the one inside that is so yearning for comfort and then realize that you're the hand that's giving yourself that comfort, mm-hmm. that you give yourself, you can give yourself exactly what you need and there's a kind of completing the circuit and stopping the battle. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's just about time. Unless there's any last burning question will close with loving kindness going once twice okay time for do you want to do it no do you want the microphone What's do you want the microphone no i got i'll do this okay. yeah so here we are we've been listening reflecting on it and if you like you can put your hand on your heart if it if it helps you get in touch with with that tenderness, <clears throat> whether or not you do, uh, first, just acknowledge the sincerity that would bring you to sharing the evening with others, wanting to sit, wanting to get in touch, wanting to be more conscious and caring. And just appreciate that about yourself. No matter what else is going on inside, there's a part of you that genuinely wants to be more conscious and kind or live in truth. And with that (coughs) reflection, send some kind thoughts to yourself. May I see through the fears and be kind to myself. May I see all the goodness inside and share my love well. May I see the Buddha inside and wake up to my true nature. And then to extend that outward to others here, just like you wanting to be happy, wanting to wake up, know the highest happiness and peace. And then extending it outward to all beings in all directions, 
just as I want to be happy, may all open to the happiness in their lives. No real ease and peace. May all see their their goodness, be in touch with their kindness, and learn to share their love well. May they all may all wake up to their true nature, heart and mind free of confusion. See the Buddha right inside the kingdom of heaven, right inside. the perfection of life as it expresses itself right through them. May all know know the highest happiness and peace. And may our coming together be of benefit to all beings everywhere. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for being with us, Kristen. Hope you have a great conference tomorrow and uh, transmit the self-compassion message to everybody there. Yeah. Have compassion for yourself if you blow it. I don't think you will, though. Have a great evening. and See you next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.